Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, good morning also to the folks who are watching online. Uh, I've been really appreciative of the last few weeks of uh, listening to uh, Paco teach and listening to Brian Shu teach. We have a rich community here, and uh, it's, it's evident in sort of, it's just not one or two people who gets up here to preach. It's, uh, we have a multitude of great preachers. And then hearing from your stories of faith, too, uh, we're reminded of what we have here in this community, what God has gifted, uh, gifted us with. So it's really, it's really awesome. So uh, we're continuing in Hebrews chapter 11. Frederick Beekner, in one of his novels, writes about a character by the name of Antonio Parr. Antonio Parr. And uh, he's a father, and he goes on this journey for several weeks, and then he comes back home and his young son wants to welcome him home, so he gets some of his friends together and they make this welcome home sign. It says, welcome home, or at least that's what it's supposed to say. Being this young little boy, he doesn't know exactly how everything works, so the sign says, welcome home, H-O-N-E. He left the last M off of the letter, so it says, welcome home, welcome home. He meant to say, welcome home, but instead, he says, welcome home with his beautiful sign. And Antonio reflects on this later after seeing this sign. It seemed oddly fitting. It was good to get home, but it was home with something missing or out of whack about it. It wasn't much to be sure, just some minor stroke or serif, but even a minor stroke can make a major difference. So later, Antonio says that the sign makes him think of the men and women featured in Hebrews chapter 11, who kept looking for some small but crucial thing that was missing. Come hell or high water, wherever they went, until their eyes were dim and their arches fallen. Can you identify with Antonio? Can you relate to him, to his longing? Can you feel what he feels? I think most of us can. We can relate to him who relates to the men and women of Hebrews chapter 11, the men and women that we are studying this summer. So uh, we looked last week at the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. We're going to look at them again next week. But in the middle of that, the writer of Hebrews uh, stops to reflect upon their faith. And as he reflects upon their faith, we learn some important things about the faith that we can have ourselves as followers of Jesus. So, Hebrews chapter 11, first of all, verses 13 to 14. These all died in faith, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, not having received the things, that, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth or on the land, on the promised land. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So they died in faith, meaning they died wanting something more than what they had. They had the promised land. That is the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants, but they didn't possess the land. They wandered in it. They were strangers and exiles in that land. And they, they recognized, even in that land that was promised them, that it symbolized something more. They wanted something more than the promised land. Now, eventually, their descendants would possess the land. 
But their desires, even then, were working their way forward so that those who actually possessed the land could recognize that the land was just a symbol of something more. They longed for something more. They longed for the heavenly homeland. They longed for the new promised land, the land in which God permanently dwells. So they were strangers and exiles in the land that God had promised them. And they were seeking, they were wanting, they died in faith. In other words, they died well. They died in faith, they died wanting, they died well. They were seeking a homeland, not the land that they were living in, they were seeking a homeland beyond that, looking to the heavenly homeland in which God dwells. So in reality, they were actually seeking God. They were seeking the God of the heavenly homeland. And we have seen also in the book of Hebrews that God rewards those who seek him. Those who are, who are on a quest to know God, those who seek him, God rewards them with his presence now, at least in part, but definitely fully in the new promised land. And, and these men and women, they, they, they could somehow see beyond what they were seeing. They, they could see through all of this with faith to the heavenly homeland so that they could greet it from afar. They were in the promised land. They didn't receive the fulfillment of the promises concerning that land, but they were there and they could see and they could understand that they wanted to greet this heavenly homeland and they greeted it from afar. People who were living in a distant land, looking back to their lands, they would salute their homeland. And so that's what they're doing. They're saluting their homeland, believing that God would close the distance of time between where they were and ultimately where they were going to be. So they were strangers and aliens. They were content, if you will, to be discontent. Uh, do you feel that way? Do you feel as if you are a stranger here, an exile here, an alien here? The, the theme of alienation is a very powerful theme that runs through much art. Think back to Catcher in the, Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. It's all about alienation, the teenager who feels alienation. And J.D. Salinger himself felt this alienation powerfully, so much so that he withdrew from society and he became a hermit right after he wrote that book for decades up until the time that he died. As most of you know, I quote Bob Dylan about uh, three or four times a year, so I'm gonna do it again here. I don't think I've reached the statute of limitations yet for this particular year, so here you go. In the 1960s, Bob Dylan sings, I just can't fit. Yes, I believe it's time for us to quit. Some four decades later, he, he writes and he sings, walking through the leaves, falling from the trees, feeling like a stranger that nobody sees. It's a common human experience. We feel like we're a stranger here and that nobody really sees us and that nobody really knows us. Most of us probably feel that way more or less most of our lives. We have moments when we feel as if everything's coming together and we really belong and then the moment fades. And so once again, we're thrown back to that feeling of alienation. If you feel that way, you are in good company. Abraham, the father of faith, felt that way. 
If he felt that way, we can feel that way also. And so we, we, we would really love to fit in. And it seems like oftentimes we don't just fit in. There's just something about us that doesn't fit in. I appreciated Brian's shoes sharing last week along those lines, that he feels as if he doesn't quite fit in. Now, to complicate matters further, there is this value in American culture regarding standing out. We sort of value, culturally speaking, the people who distinguish themselves, who think outside the box, who go outside the lines, who stand out in some way. Now, if you're trying to fit in and stand out at the same time, you're gonna go crazy. It's hard to do both. It's hard to fit in and stand out. So, do you feel like you're a stranger here, an exile, an alien? Do you feel as if you don't belong? Good. You're supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to feel that way so that you can seek something, so that you can seek your heavenly homeland, more particularly so that you can seek the God of the heavenly homeland. You are supposed to feel as if you do not belong so that you can seek God. Seek God. Make it your ambition to seek God. How do you do this? Within certain biblical limitations, any way you can. Seek God every day for the rest of your life until heaven comes to earth. And this quest will never be complete until, until you see Jesus face to face. So you have to learn to live with it. But you know where to go looking for it. You go looking for it in the face of Jesus. Seek God. First Chronicles 22, verse 19 says, set your heart and mind to seek the Lord. Set your heart and your mind to seek the Lord. Make it intentional. Be intentional about seeking the Lord. These men and women, the patriarchs, they died well. They died wanting more. They died in faith. In the movie Braveheart, William Wallace is about to be tortured and executed, and in his prison cell, right before this happens, he prays. He prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, help me die well. By that, he means, help me not to beg for mercy. Well, for us, it's not that complicated. Dying well means you're seeking the Lord. Dying well means you are wanting more than whatever has been given to you on this earth because you know there is something more, and you're seeking for it. I quote C.S. Lewis probably about as much as I do Bob Dylan, so here it is again, maybe the third time this year, maybe the second time in the last two sermons. He says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. Now listen to this logic, it's beautiful. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for the heavenly homeland. Can you feel it? Can you seek it? If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. 
Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. Do you see what it's saying? He's saying these pleasures, these gifts, these blessings are to be appreciated. Don't despise them, but don't misunderstand them for the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. That's great stuff. So we have got, we've got these patriarchs. They came from someplace. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, he listened to the call of God. God said, go out to this land, which I'm going to show you. He left there. Now, what does he think about the place that he left? Verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. If they, had, they had, if they wanted to go back to where they came from, they could have done that. They had the opportunity to do that, but they didn't do so. They were in the promised land as aliens and exiles and strangers. They were unsettled. They were unsafe. If they wanted to be safe and settled, they knew where to go. They came from that place. They came from Ur of the Chaldees. They could have gone back there but they didn't want to be safe and settled. That was not their primary objective. They wanted God and they wanted the heavenly homeland. And for that, they knew they needed to live in the promised land as aliens and to be content with being discontent until heaven comes to earth. They longed for a better country. They longed for the heavenly country in, in which... God's presence dwells eternally. They were content to be discontent. Now, I don't know where you've come from. I don't know where you're going. Uh, I don't know if you were born here. I don't know if you've come here. I find myself being kind of unusual being my age and having been here for pretty much most of my life. I grew up here. I don't find that to be the case with many people. So I see many people coming from someplace else and then sometimes I see those people going back to where they came from. Nothing wrong with that. I did that myself. I grew up here. I went away several times. Somehow this place has a magnetic effect on me. I kept coming back. And near as I can tell, I'm back here for the long haul. Been back here for, I don't know, 30 years now or something like that. Um, so there's nothing wrong with going back to the place that you came from, assuming that God calls you to do that. But don't think for a minute that doing that is somehow going to dispel this feeling of alienation. You're always going to feel that to some degree. And there's no place that's going to really dispel that. And there are some people who, you know, God bless them, they move from place to place and community to community sort of looking for the new answer that's going to solve their problems, that's going to make them feel as if they belong. 
And maybe God moves them on, but maybe they're just kind of restless and they need to sort of move on to the next place and they're thinking that the next place and the next community is gonna do it for them. Perhaps God is calling them to do that, I don't know. But we have to realize that wherever we go, home, however we define home, is always going to feel just a little bit like hone, H-O-N-E. And if we miss where we came from, and we miss those people, and we miss that environment, that's good, that's all right. They were beautiful things that were given to you at a certain time, in a certain place. But what they are doing is giving you a foretaste. At their best, they're giving you a foretaste of what it will be like to dwell with the Lord and his people for all eternity in the heavenly homeland. You can go back if you want. You can go back in your mind. You can remember. It's good to remember. There are, the, the, the scriptures are filled with commands to remember where you came from and remember God's faithfulness. Not to pine for the good old days, but here's how you can remember. You can look back and say, thank you, Lord. That was awesome. That was great. I had a good childhood, if you had a good childhood. Or I, I had aspects of a good childhood. I remember that. I remember that home. I, I, I remember what it feels like to open that door. I remember the smells. I don't smell that anymore, but I can remember those smells. That's good. But you know what that's doing? It's pointing you forward. It's pointing you forward to the new creation. It's not so much pointing you backwards, it's pointing you forwards. Because the best country the best land is not where you have come from, it is where you are going to. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, my father died on May 20th. And he lived in the same house in Mountain View for 57 years. It's the house that my brothers and I grew up in. And so, uh, you know, he, he's lived there alone for 30 years since my mother died in 1990. I visit him very regularly. And, uh, and so uh, now we have to decide what to do with the, with the house. And it's pretty clear we have to let it pass from the family. But this is a painful thing for me. I have so many strong memories at this house. And uh, really, if I, if I had my wishes, I, I, I wouldn't want to rent the house or sell the house. What I would want to do is turn it into a historical monument and give tours. And let me, let me tell you about Silicon Valley before it was the Silicon Valley. Let me tell you about the Santa Clara Valley. Let me tell you about all of these orchards, the apricot orchards that were surrounding this particular house, this particular neighborhood. This neighborhood went in in 1963 and 64 and there were orchards all around. And we had the run of the neighborhood. No one was worrying about, no parent was worrying about having their kids getting stolen or anything like that or kidnapping. And there was no fear the way there is today. Let me tell you about those days and let me give you a tour of the house. Let me tell you what happened here and here and here. And as my brothers and I got together and we're going through the things and we're still doing that, but the first time we did that, we unearthed all these historical artifacts, <laughs> these gems. And each one that was surfaced, created all of these memories. Now, one, one example is my brother pulled out this bat, this broken, sawed-off baseball bat from the closet. And he says, remember this? And, oh, 
God, you know, do I remember this? We played, we made up this baseball game. We called it Nishball. We made, we got this uh, newspaper and we wrapped up the paper with masking tape and the pitcher would stand in the middle of the street and the batter would stand in our front yard. We put a, a chair, a lawn chair there and if, you, if, if it hit the lawn chair, that was a strike. And if you uh, got the ball past the pitcher, that was a single. And if, you, if the ball crashed into the house across the street, that was a double. And if it went over the roof into the backyard, oh, that was a home run, of course. Now, can you imagine growing up in a neighborhood in which the neighbors across the street did not mind in the least that projectiles were, were, were flying toward their house and crashing into their windows for two hours on a Saturday afternoon? They didn't mind it. Of course, the neighbor was my little league coach, so we thought it was pretty cool. But as we were going through these things, and I've, as I've continued to go through these things, and I'm brought back to that special time and place. I'm also studying Hebrews chapter 11, and the Lord is telling me it was great. Yeah, it was beautiful and sweet and awesome. Mostly, it wasn't all great, but there was a lot of great stuff there, sweet memories. The Lord's telling me, you know what? The best is yet to come. And the best is going to be like this, only better. That's what those memories do for us. They push us forward, not backwards. What does God feel about those who seek him? We have to seek him. That's what we must do. Verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's, it's as if others would accuse God of guilt by association, by association with the patriarchs. You're, you're their God? And we know the stories in Genesis. These people are far from perfect, especially Jacob. He's an absolute mess. You know, you, you're the God of Jacob? Come on. Guilt by association. However, the text says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. You'd think that God might back away from this, these people, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he? It's because of their desire. It's because of what they want. It's because they are seeking him. It's because they are seeking a better country. It's because of their desire. It's because of what they want. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, this cannot be a negative simply for a negative sake. It has to be a negative for the sake of a positive. Let me explain it by this. You're a parent. If you're not a parent, imagine that you're a parent. And you have a child, a young boy or a young girl that you love very much. And you see that child doing what is good and noble and beautiful. And when you have the opportunity, you go up to that child and you say to her, honey, I want you to know one thing. I saw what you were doing there, and I just want you to know, I'm not ashamed of you. Is that what you're gonna say? No. What's the opposite of shame? It's pride, right? This is a negative in order to emphasize a positive. God is proud to be called their God. God is Proud to be called your God. Why? Because you seek him. 
Make God proud by seeking him. It doesn't seem to be that complicated. It doesn't seem as if you have to have some perfect moral life. It doesn't seem as if you have to climb some mountain. It doesn't seem as if you have to achieve some great thing, some perfect holy life. All you have to do is to seek God. Seek him, desire him, find in him all of these desires that you have and use those desires in a channel to seek him and make God proud. Hebrews chapter eight, verse 10, just a few chapters earlier, uh, the Lord says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will seek me and I will be their God. Notice that um, it doesn't say that God is not ashamed of those who find him. The text says he is not ashamed of those who seek him. Now, certainly it is true that God is not ashamed of those who find him, but not everyone finds him all the time. Even those, who, those of us who know Jesus who are seeking him a lot of the time don't seem to be able to find him. But... It's the seeking here that is emphasized. Let me put it this way. You are dying of thirst and you're in a desert. And you know there's an oasis out there someplace. How are you going to sort of glorify or honor or magnify that oasis? You might not be able to find it right away, but you know that that's where life is. And you're gonna seek that oasis. You're gonna look for that oasis with everything you've got as if your life depended on it. That is honoring or magnifying or glorifying the oasis. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, the living God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. And if your soul thirsts and you're looking for God, that magnifies and honors God. God is proud. God is proud of those who seek him. That's what he made us to do is to seek him. And we're going to find him in bits and pieces and snitches and snatches here from time to time. But a lot of it is going to be seeking and searching as if we were in that desert oasis, that desert, knowing that an oasis is out there somewhere. And we're going to press on seeking for the oasis. Now, the evidence that God honors those who seek him is that he has prepared a city for them. He's prepared a city for them. So he's not, he, this, is, this is a done deal, by the way. He's already prepared the city. And um, that would be the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God one day to take over the whole creation. He's already done it. And if, you, and if, you're, if you're God, and, and, and well, you're not God, but think of God as honoring these people who are seeking him. What's he going to do? He's going to prepare something for them. What's he going to prepare for them? A city. A city that is what? That is suited for them. That is just right for them. You see, we don't know what we need, but God does. And he prepares, he's already prepared this heavenly city for us. He knows all of our nuances.
Jesus says this, Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's already been done, it's ready. And when you make preparations for someone, you make preparations for someone you care about. It makes a difference, doesn't it? If you come to someone's house and you could tell that they have prepared for you, that's what God does. He's already prepared for us. This beautiful, beautiful city that when we see it is just gonna be absolutely perfect. Therefore, until we get to that place or until that place comes here, we can be content to be discontent. For a sneak preview of the city, you go to Revelation chapter 21, verse one to 22, verse five. But read it imaginatively. And also think about what it is that you desire. Think, what do you like in a city? What do you want in a city? Maybe you don't like the city. Maybe you like the country. Maybe it's gonna be something like that. When I envision this city, I envision a Tuscan hill town. And there's gonna be this beautiful piazza in the middle of it. And we're all gonna drink our espresso. Well, you know, I'm gonna drink my espresso. You might drink something else. And we're gonna share our stories of faith. And, and there just might be a trout stream on the outskirts of this city. Now, I don't know if that's what it's gonna be, but if it's not gonna be that, for me, it's gonna be something better. If it's not gonna be what you can imagine, it's gonna be something better. Seek God, make him proud. It may not seem that God values our desires, but if you seek him, you are just making him proud. Can you, can you envision, it's just, you could just take a moment to seek God. Okay, I'm seeking you, I'm looking at the scriptures, I'm praying, where are you God? I'm wondering where you are, I'm seeking you. Can you imagine in that moment, God beaming with pride? That could carry you on for the next moment. Let me just say to you, if you don't believe in Jesus, God, why, why not? What are, you, what are you hoping for? Believe in Jesus. He died for your sins. He died to make you right with God to prepare you for the city that he has prepared you for. Believe in Jesus. So remember Antonio Parr? He realized when he came home and he saw that welcome home sign that something was missing. Frederick Buechner, the author, later reveals what he was thinking as he was writing this scene. It's rare you get this from a writer, but the writer in this case reveals his tricks, tells you how he did it. Here's what he says. From as deep a place within me as my books and dreams come from, there came along with the misspelled sign, this revelation, that although Antonio Parr was enormously glad to be home at last, he recognized that there was something small but crucial missing, which if only for a moment made him feel like Gideon and Barak before him and all the patriarchs, that he was a stranger and exiled there. And now Beekner speaks personally. Like Antonio, I also sense that something of great importance is missing. I also know the sense of sadness and lostness that comes 
with feeling that you are a stranger and exile on earth and that you would travel to the ends of the earth and beyond if you thought you could ever find the homeland that up until now you have only glimpsed from afar. Brothers and sisters, seek God, make him proud. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, say that thou art. Waking or sleeping